Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ahir Shah. Following the collapse of the trust government, mercifully brief, merciless in many other ways, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt swept into power promising fiscal rectitude and the ability to reassure the markets. At times, it feels like the government is headed not necessarily by a prime minister, but by two chancellors of the exchequer. The Treasury is at the heart of so much that the British government both does and fails to do, and is subject of increasing interest and scrutiny across the political spectrum. Joining me to discuss the Treasury is Aaron Davis, Professor of Political Communication at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand and author of the new book, Bankruptcy, Bubbles and Bailouts, The Inside History of the Treasury Since 1976. Aaron, welcome to The Bunker. Thanks for having me. Firstly, Aaron, you discuss the sort of contradictions of the Treasury uh, in your book extensively. So you describe it sort of as this joint finance department and economic ministry. Uh, Could you explain sort of why this is a contradiction and quite how unusual we are in this regard? Like you describe it as being one of the most powerful departments of its kind in the world. Yeah, well, I mean, we're not alone in this, but uh, if you look at Germany or the US, they sort of divide those functions. And the the problem why it's contradictory is, is the finance side of it is all about holding things together and keeping things on a level, matching income and expenditure. Um, So it's basically controlling a government expenditure. And the main role there, and most people employed at the Treasury, their main role is to stop everyone spending money. Now, that's a contradiction if you have a sort of broad thinking economic policy of any kind that involves government intervention or government spending, because that theory requires government expenditure. So the same department is telling itself not to do any of that. So anyone who comes up with sort of grand macroeconomic plan uh, is going to come up against the other half of the department saying, no, you can't do that. And the more powerful the Treasury is, the better it is at slapping back those ideas. So sort of unlike certain perhaps comparative countries, we've got basically push and pull coming from the same building. That's right. And then there's an argument to hold them together because you need that sort of control and uh, you need to stop. Uh, powerful politicians, presidents, prime ministers, or whoever, uh, just spending money as they like uh, in order to curry favour with the electorate, especially during the electoral cycle as it comes up to elections and that sort of thing. So you sort of need that in a way. But on on the other hand, you're preventing long-term, long-term bigger initiatives. 
You write that in speaking to a former permanent secretary to the Treasury, Lord McPherson, he believed that despite serving very different governments over his over three decades, there was still a quote unquote treasury view. Right. So is is this the case in the experience of all the people that you interviewed in your research? And if so, sort of what is that view? Um, there is a treasury view. Not everyone will agree on the parts of it, but quite a few parts go back to Gladstone's time. That's what Macpherson and others would say. And those core elements are basically free markets know best, free trade is best, you have to balance the budget, and you have to try and have a stable pound. And those things are fairly enduring. Um, they're what I call a Keynesian interlude. I mean, when I started researching this, I, I thought there was a counter to Keynes, but but many people put it to me as a sort of interlude. The Treasury had this had this thinking long before Keynes turned up. Keynes turned things on its head, and then when when he went or when his successors went, they could go back more to the, the Treasury norms. Those things most people agree on, but I, I would have said during the last forty five years of the book, there have been other elements that have become part of the orthodoxy of the treasury and they're less publicly stated but they're repeated day in day out and one of those is to do with uh, investing in finance or encouraging big finance Uh, and it's become a self-fulfilling thing we had a very big financial center in the past it went into abeyance in the keynesian years and during the the 80s with big bang and everything else it really exploded again and now thinking as always to sort of encourage that because that's one of our few world-leading industries. Uh, so that's encouraged at the same time as the Treasury and economic policy steps away from encouraging uh, manufacturing, say. So so that one of the orthodoxies is a bias towards big finance. I'd say another bias is, is towards, uh, I guess, sort of internationalization and international thinking. And by that, I realise when you talk to enough people in the Treasury who've been there for the last 45 years, that... They're very interested and open to encouraging successful multinational firms from abroad, Japan, the US, wherever else, and they will give them all sorts of enticements and help to come and set up in Britain. But at the same time, there's a great reluctance to do the same for British firms. And in fact, since the 80s, they've been winding down all those natural supports. And many other countries have quite a few supports, quite a few more supports, structural, institutional, economic, to support their industries and to support them in exporting and and growing in the world. But we've sort of done the opposite. We've got this sort of island mentality where actually, as as someone put it to me, um, um, it's the Wimbledon effect. Uh, We we encourage all the big players to come here, and that's more important than actually having a winner of Wimbledon. Uh, Though, as he said that at the time, shortly afterwards, um, we had Andrew Murray, who actually did win it. But we were used to not having a winner of our own. But as long as we had winners from elsewhere come here, that's all that mattered. And you realise that's a very consistent view in the Treasury. Something that I've read a lot whenever you sort of read any sort of article about the Treasury, words like Treasury groupthink or Treasury orthodoxy will often come in, and orthodoxy in a sort of pejorative way. And uh, in the course of your research for this book, you, you spoke to believe, eight former chancellors, six permanent secretaries to the Treasury, uh, among others. To, to what extent do you think that this groupthink is a, a real thing, a damaging thing? or Because alternatively, sometimes the orthodoxy can just be sort of don't touch the hob when it's on. Uh, mm. And everyone's like, oh, well, you're just following the orthodoxy and Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng come along and touch the hob when it's on. And lo and behold, it's hot. Um, yeah, well, I can see important sides to the, the orthodoxy. Um, as I said earlier, if, if you allow 
the Boris Johnsons or Donald Trumps of this world, their, their free hand with the, the, the nation's money, they're very much, you know, they have a populist take on it all. So they'll spend that money and they won't worry about it. I mean, the same was said of, of past lab, old Labour governments wanting to spend money on various things which weren't necessarily good for the economy in the long run, um, weren't good for productivity and all the rest of it. So, so, you, have, so you do have to have a certain amount of um, orthodoxy. Uh, the other thing is, is most politicians that come in these days are not economists. They know very little about the economy and they need a lot of advice. Uh, and, and that advice isn't simply about the orthodoxy, but it's about how things are done, how we work with the Bank of England or we work with the city or we work with international capital or we work with international economic institutions like the IMF. And I mean, one of the problems of, of Kwarteng and, and Trust is, is they... They didn't even bother considering those things. They didn't consult. And a big part of the problem was, was yeah, they, they touched the hob when it was on, uh, but they didn't bother asking anyone about that hob uh, or what would happen if they did turn it on. Um, and so for that, you, you need certain orthodoxies. Uh, but of course, there's, there's the counter. And the orthodoxies are ways that people on a day-to-day basis, a culture sets in, a way of doing things sets in, and um, I mean, in the Treasury, it's quite a hothouse. It's quite a fast moving place, uh, especially as you lead up to budgets or if you're dealing with any sort of crisis of any kind. Lots of decisions have to be made about large amounts of money. And in, in the, f- the fire of the moment, it's necessary or people fall back to their orthodoxies, to their practices. This is how we do this. This is how we do that. It's good to have those, you know. But on the other hand, in the long term, it can be quite uh, constraining. Again, I, I asked other people about this, uh, you know, what do we do? We're clearly in a crisis. The orthodoxy isn't working, not just the Treasury orthodoxy, but economic policies from left and right are no longer working or make sense as they did. So what do we do? And, and people sort of who'd stepped away from the Treasury said, well, you're not going to get that change from the Treasury because the Treasury is at the centre of it. So the Treasury is the main constraint to some radical paradigm shift at the same time. Not because they want to hold on to everything, um, but because they can't see beyond their own working environment. In the time period that you cover uh, in this book, how has the makeup of the people sort of staffing the Treasury uh, changed over time? And how has that impacted the way that people think? Well, the interesting thing is back in the 70s, and this sounds bizarre from this point of view, is, is there were very few economists actually in the Treasury. And what economists there were, were very sort of lowly figures. The people who, who ran the place were more likely to have a classics degree from, from Cambridge. And um, that sort of general arts intellectual background was seen as more important. And they, they sort of followed the rule books that were passed on to them by earlier rounds of Keynesians. What did happen in the 80s is suddenly people woke up to the, the fact that you needed economists in the treasury. And economists started coming in. Not only that, but they were, they, the glass ceiling was removed and they were allowed to become senior treasury officials and every treasury official for the last 25 30 years uh, now has an economics training the trouble is what happened in the 80s is is quite a few narrow-minded economists uh, the flip was 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 away from keynes was was also away from macroeconomics so the people who came in uh, tended to be microeconomists accountants uh, tax specialists people who don't have a broader economic view of the, the wider economy but what that meant is, is the Treasury has gained more control over the years. And in theory, it's got more appropriate people running it. But on the other hand, those 
people are picked not because they have wider macroeconomic abilities or, or thinking, but because they're much more day-to-day microeconomists and accountants. And that's narrowed the vision. Uh, uh, it hasn't helped us look beyond that. And, and when you talk to certain people, um, Gus O'Donnell is one of them, uh, who was head of the Treasury and then head of the Civil Service, uh, he, he looks back and he says, this, this seemed great at the time. And, you know, he was an economist. He came up through the ranks. He was allowed to jump through that glass ceiling. But he said, by the time we got to the 2000s, we didn't have other broader views. We didn't have sort of behavioral economists, macroeconomists. We didn't have people like psychologists or social scientists who could say, hang on a moment, we need to look at the real economy and real human behavior. And none of that was there during the great financial crisis. He said there's been some attempts since then to get some broader ideas in, but it still seems very narrow, uh, which is which is why the Treasury isn't going to be a place where we're going to get big, broad ideas for changing the economy and for getting out of the kind of mess that we're in now. The 2024 general election will make history, not least because it's the first one a Prime Minister looks like he's actively trying to lose. Stay on top of the vote and cut through the nonsense with Oh God, What Now? The original No Bullshit Politics podcast. With me, Dorian Linsky, plus top journalists, comedians and commentators. Twice a week, we follow Richie Sunak's doom spiral, keep a critical eye on Keir Starmer's progress, look at the big issues that will shape the vote and have a desperately needed laugh as well. We are proudly independent, so we don't have to stick to fake balance or give a weak both sides take on any issue. We can call it all as we see it, and we can swear too. So if you're looking for election coverage that captures how people really feel, try Oh God, What Now? High quality analysis, brilliant conversation and jokes twice a week, with extra special editions in the run up to the election too. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. So, Aaron, part of the story that you tell is an organization that has certain things that spring into gear during a crisis. And in one way, the story of the Treasury since 1976 can be told through the prism of its behavior during these crises, right? You've got 76 and the bailout from the IMF, but it's the Treasury that leaps into action in order to uh, save us all. And then in 1992, crashing out of the ERM after Major's flirtation with joining the Euro, the Treasury once again is help us Treasury, you're our only hope. Uh, And same in 2007 and eight. And so it feels like there's this story that the Treasury could tell of benign technocrats reining things in or supporting things when it's all got out of hand. Um, it's obviously what the Treasury would like us to think about them. Where does the truth stand in your view? This came to me more the more I interviewed people. I mean, I came in wanting to be more critical of the Treasury because uh, I thought it always went under the radar. Mm. And people who've ever looked at the Treasury always say, yes, it's it's... It's got that hero profile. It comes in and rescues the country, rescues the government from from terrible times, and um, it keeps the show on the road. And COVID, of course, I didn't even mention COVID. And, and COVID too. And and when you actually talk to people in the thick of it, you know whether it's whether it's ninety two, or seventy six, or two thousand seven, or COVID, um, it it sounds very impressive. Actually, it does sound like you know financial Armageddon is right there. And as um, Tom Scholar said to me, up until the moment we hit these barriers, uh, we wouldn't have thought of what we would have done. And then the unthinkable suddenly became it had to be done. And so they did it. They did it during COVID. They did it during the great financial crisis. Uh, 
And the brain power and the speed and the networks and the relationships um, are very impressive when you hear that. But what is really missing is the other side, because I also blame the Treasury for holding things together and actually being a cause of some of these crises. They obviously weren't a cause of COVID, uh, but I think they're rather more implicated in the model that helped bring around the great financial crisis. Uh, now, I know one can say, of course, this was a, a global financial crisis. It started in the US. But the, the UK was very much following a similar belief in the power of markets and, and finance to right itself and had taken its eye off, off the ball in exactly the same way. And, and, and they were very strongly encouraging of the financial centre to, to deregulate and to grow and to actually outdo New York. And that's what they wanted or, or Tokyo. Now, that bit gets hidden. So you see them come along clearing up the mess, but you don't see how they've encouraged certain patterns to get out of control. And it's not, you know, it's not that conscious. It's, it's again, it's a day-to-day thing. It's day-to-day, oh, yes, we must deregulate finance because that's what they want because we get in a lot of um, taxable income from the financial centre. Uh, it really helps improve our balance of trade, a huge export industry. It's da-da-da-da-da. Um, and you get all these sorts of reasons why we need to keep giving it what it wants. And you can see the temptation now with um, the new prime minister, uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, wanting to sort of release finance again. It's the same old story without looking at actually, well, you release it too much and you get a financial crash. And that's just one area. There, there's a whole lot of other areas, uh, which I talk about in the book. There's, there's housing. Uh, economic policy and treasury policy has encouraged the housing market to grow and grow for various political and economic and financial reasons. But it's growing in ways that are are bringing us huge debt, private sector debt, corporate debt. It's also making housing unsustainable and making it harder for for businesses to operate because the cost of property. So so all these things are sort of, on the one hand, make sense. On the other hand, the, the Treasury is building up housing bubbles. So, so in a way that, you know, the Treasury is to blame as well. It's not just coming in and rescuing us. I, I make the same statement about Brexit. Um, the Treasury didn't want Brexit. If you talk to officials, they'll be very defensive about the whole thing because they got beaten up a lot over Brexit before and since. But really, from an economic point of view, the Treasury was right behind the common market, the European Union, and everything around that model. They were concerned about the politics of the European Union at times, but they were very much supportive of it. Well, so much of it in terms of the common market and things like that was largely a British-led design, right? It's, yes, it's yes, the Treasury, yes. Treasury officials did a huge amount in the 80s to bring that about, the, the, um, all those things. But at the same time, the things they did in the, in the build-up of the financial crisis, the things they did around austerity, huge regional inequality setting in, and a number of other things, without realising that actually you were alienating large parts of the population outside London and the South East. And that contributed to, to people voting to leave. So, and, and I think, again and again, the Treasury do long-term things, um, not seeing the bigger picture or where it's going to lead up. Going back to some of the things that you were talking about slightly earlier, you mentioned the model of the British economy over these uh, last few decades, sort of, uh, since Thatcher and stuff, uh, that, that lots of people refer to as just the neoliberal era. But so to describe um, this mode of the economy as a financialization, not neoliberalism, um, could you talk us through what you meant by that? Right, yeah. I mean, neoliberalism is one of those words that that's, covers anything and everything these days. Often just uh, means thing I don't like. Uh, that too. And yeah. um, 
But I, I mean, I tend to think, you know, whatever neoliberalism is, it, it has its strong variations from country to country. So I try and think of, well, what happened here? And the things that happened here, well, if you go back to Keynesianism, we had, we had state-owned industry. You, you had the communication and, and the coordination between the unions, the heads of big business and, and the government in terms of managing the economy. And that was the post-war sort of thing that was pulled together. Thatcher and, and, and the Thatcherites came along and they pulled that all apart. They knew they didn't want that. They didn't want um, the leaders of big industry who they thought had messed things up. They didn't want the unions who had messed things up as far as they were concerned. And the state really wasn't doing the right thing. So they had to step away. And in the book, I, I say three things took its place. They didn't know what was going to take its place, but three things did. And one of those was financialization. The second thing I say was what I call a privatized or pseudo-Keynesianism. I also call it magic money trees, which I can go into detail. And the third thing is this sort of internationalism. In terms of financialization, what happened was specifically linked to finance and financial thinking. People know we privatized an awful lot of the state-owned industries. But if you look into it, and if you interview the people there at the time, they didn't just sell them off. They, they floated them on the London Stock Exchange. And those companies then became tradable entities on the, London, on the financial markets, um, rather than just being sold off. And, they, and that happened because the people in the 80s, people like Nigel Lawson, knew far more about the city. Uh, and the same with, with Cecil Parkinson. They knew far more about the city than, than anything else. And that's the way the city did things. So they did, they did the way they did the things the city did. Um, but not only did they sell off the industries to the financial sector, um, every time there was a review of corporate governance regulation, uh, the board who discussed it was packed full of financiers, people from the city. So they got to set the rules and they set the rules in a way that meant that companies' first rule of corporate governance was to be answerable to the shareholders and maintain the share price above every other stakeholder, employees, regions, wh whatever else their first role, rule was to do what shareholders want. And a whole lot of other things happened. The way the taxation system changed, so taxes were taken away from the financial sector. Uh, you used to get all sorts of taxes on, on dividends and, and other things. Um, and that was paid for by reducing all sorts of stimuli to, to manufacturing. And it's been that way sort of ever since. The, uh, and so, so, you know, I wanted to make that distinction in the book. So... To close off, Aaron, you, know, you write that even by 1997, you write the city infiltration of the Treasury had already been completed. So if we view this period as the outsourcing of the British economy to the city uh, in, in large part, is now, given his professional background, new Prime Minister Rishi Sunak sort of the apotheosis of this trajectory? Yes. Well, I guess I spoke too soon. Um because the 80s and 90s was an extraordinary moment when a large number of ministers in the cabinet who occupied the Treasury and the, the Department of Trade and Industry then came from the city. And we've never had that before or since, the ministers coming from that sector. We, we've had a succession of ministers on and off since then. Labour didn't have that, all those city connections, but they certainly drafted in a lot of people. So every time there was some financial manoeuvre, uh, say, setting up PFI, private finance initiatives, or, or anything else, numbers of city people were, were brought in to tell us how to do things and to how to run the department and how to run those aspects of government. 
But yes, since since then, and I'd say from 2010, was the banks actually, ironically, the banks which caused the great financial crisis as much as anyone else, were then brought in to advise us how to fix it. They've had quite a presence since then. And if you look at everyone leading the coalition involved with economic policy at a senior level, every one of them has ended up with a job in, in, in finance. And more than that, we've gone back to this conveyor belt of, of both ministers and senior civil servants moving back and forward between the two. And yeah, Rishi Sunak's come the other way. He spent years in Goldman Sachs and then um, a number of you know, hedge funds and, and other things. So looking now, um, back in 2010, Osborne and Cameron sort of said, we have to do austerity, we have to do this economic policy because the city won't like it otherwise. No one will buy our debt and we'll be bankrupt like Greece. And we now see a rerun of that. And the four wise people advising Jeremy Hunt, who's not from the financial sector, but the four people advising him are all from the city. Once again, they're all, they've all been drafted in from the financial sector, not from business, not from any other parts of the economy, but from the city. And Rishi Sunak, uh, as well as Satya Javid, who came before, and one or two other recent high-up appointments, have come from the city. But yes, uh, I wrote a piece saying um, Rishi Sunak is our first investment banker as prime minister. And that that is that we've reached the high point. So so it does seem that economic policy has to be okayed by the financial sector. And that's more visible now than it was back in 2010. It's certainly more visible than it was any time before then. But it seems bizarre that a political system now seems so cap in hand to one sector of the economy to tell it what to do. And uh, unfortunately, as, as I also say, the financial sector, they don't make anything. They don't run businesses. They don't run industry. They don't manufacture. They have no idea how the real economy works for most people. And those people are now overseeing political and economic policy in the country. So it is kind of concerning. Aaron, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for talking to me. That was Professor Aaron Davis, whose book, Bankruptcy, Bubbles and Bailouts, The Inside History of the Treasury Since 1976, is out now. And listeners, thanks for joining us on The Bunker. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. Do follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you are able to, you can get every edition of The Bunker early, plus merchandise and more by supporting us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunn. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm in 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. The Bunker was presented by Ahir Shah. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieber, and the producers were Alex Reese and Jack Gerberts. Assistant production from Kasia Tomasiewicz. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. And our theme tune is by Kenny Dickens. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.